Father, this morning as we read from your word, God, we're going to be trying to answer a question that I think for some of us is a difficult question that we have, especially for those of us who are walking through really hard circumstances. And the question that we're going to be trying to ask and answer is, why is it, God, that you seem to intervene in some people's lives? But it seems like you don't intervene in mine. Or when I send up prayers to you, God, how come I don't experience miraculous results? like the stories I hear of others or the stories I read in the Bible. God, I pray as we enter into that question and we look to your text this morning that, Lord, you would answer our question, that you would reveal to us your character and what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, I pray especially for those who are here this morning who are walking through really hard circumstances that, God, you would Encourage them this morning. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So uh, back in 2011, a documentary came out entitled Happiness. Uh, I think you can watch this on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on there uh, or not. But this documentary was inspired by a New York Times article that ranked the United States as the 23rd happiest country in the world. So despite being like far and above the number one in GDP and being the wealthiest, most influential, most powerful nation in the world, we ranked, according to this article, as number 23 when it comes to happiness. And so this guy named Rocco decides to make a documentary. And what he does is he travels the world And he interviews all different kinds of people from different cultures, different economic statuses, so very poor to very wealthy, different countries, different situations, different occupations. He just kind of goes across the board, interviews people, trying to determine what makes people happy. And in this uh, film, he interviews a psychologist from the University of California. And this uh, psychologist has done a lot of research on this. And she has determined that there are basically three factors in our lives that influence our level of happiness. And so she said the first one is 50% of your happiness is basically determined by what she calls your set point, genetics. Kind of your genetic predisposition to the feeling of happiness, 50%. She said 40% is due to your own decisions. Basically, the way that you have lived your life, the decisions that you've made, 40% contributes to if you feel happy or not. And she said 10%, just 10% has to do with your circumstances, things external to you, imposed upon you, that impact your level of happiness. And in this documentary, this is actually the conclusion of the documentary. He goes and he interviews all of these people and he determines that actually circumstances have very little to do with how happy people are. And so I just think that's a really interesting 
observation because I think most of us default to assuming that our circumstances are the largest factor when it comes to our happiness and our joy. And, and if we could escape all of the negative circumstances in our life, if we could cut out all of the negative people in our life, if we could rid our bodies of everything toxic, if we could avoid disease, if we could spend time only doing the things that we are passionate about, if we had the economic freedom to do whatever we wanted to do, if we had all those things, then, then happiness would be inevitable and unavoidable, right? I think most of us assume that. And this is actually the secular gospel message, the message that secularism wants to preach to us. It's this idea that you were born a blank slate, just a blank slate, and the world has brought all of this negativity and corruption upon you. So anything bad in your life or anything bad within you is actually the world imposing itself on you. You And so salvation or enlightenment or, or getting to where we want to go is this idea of discovering your true self, uh, cutting out anybody who is negative, anybody that would impose any sort of law or standard upon you, cut them out because life is short. You need to do you. Don't waste your time with anyone or anything that's going to get in your way. That's the secular message. But the data shows that your circumstances only account for 10% of your happiness. Yet we're wired into thinking that our circumstances is the determining factor. And you know what I think we do is I think we bring this belief into our relationship with God. We, we worship this God, and the Bible tells us who's sovereign, who's all-powerful, can do anything that he wants to do. He can supernaturally change our circumstances if he were to choose to do so. And so it's like we have this thing that we all want, happiness, joy, peace, contentment, whatever, whatever it is. It's our circumstances that are threatening this happiness. And if all of those negative circumstances were eliminated, then I would be truly happy. And so I have this God who has the ability to, to supernaturally, miraculously deal with these circumstances. And so therefore my faith, my relationship with God is all about how can I get this God to exert his will upon my circumstances so I can get what I truly want, which is Happiness. And this morning, here's my, my hope and my prayer, is that we all discover that what is so amazing about our God is that he actually is after our happiness and our peace and our joy. And he is not going to follow our lead nor take instructions from us on how he pursues it. Because he's our creator. He designed us. He's better at pursuing our joy than we are. He knows actually how 
to do it, and he's going to do it his way, not our way. And that is really, really good news for us this morning. And so here's what we're going to do. This morning, we're going to go back to our study in the Gospel of Luke. We're in the end of chapter 4. If you remember last week, uh, we are in chapter 4 as well, and we read about uh, Jesus beginning his public ministry. So he's just getting started, going from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, preaching about the kingdom of God. And we talked about this last week. The, the Jews longed for the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God represented when God would come and he would get rid of all of their negative circumstances. He would set up his rule. There would be no more oppression or anything like that. And so the Jews longed for the kingdom. And so Jesus is going from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, and he's preaching that he is the one who's going to bring this kingdom. And so this morning, as we continue in our text, we're gonna learn more about what does Jesus actually mean by that? All right, so let's read it. Uh, Luke chapter four, starting in verse 31. I'm gonna read through the end of the chapter, through verse 44. So if you remember, Jesus just left Nazareth. He was with the people in the synagogue and it didn't end well, if you remember from last week. Now he's on his way to Capernaum. So verse 31, and Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house as Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to Jesus on her behalf. And Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, one thing you're gonna notice in the text that we just read is the word authority was used several times. Jesus was demonstrating his authority. 
His teaching possessed authority. Remember they said, they looked at him and be like, look, his teaching has this authority that we've never heard before. Jesus had the authority over demons and they had to obey his commands. The, the text even says that Jesus rebuked the fever, the illness in Peter's mother-in-law. So he had authority even over disease and sickness. So, so what we're reading here is a display of the fact that Jesus possesses authority over what is true. He possesses authority over the physical and he possesses authority over the spiritual. All right, and so as we saw last week and as Jesus says this morning, all right, his mission and purpose at this time, according to verse 43, is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is going from town to town, preaching in the synagogues. I, I'm presuming he's preaching from Isaiah 61, just like he did in Nazareth. And, and the message he preached and what was he was demonstrating was that he has the authority and he has the ability to bring the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? This is a question we kind of keep needing to answer. The kingdom of God is the restoration of all things. It's the kingdom of God is wherever God is king. And where's the last place in the Bible where God was truly king? It was in the garden. When Adam and Eve, they, they looked to God as, as their ruler, they, they loved him. There was harmony between God and man and creation. The kingdom of God coming is the elimination of all sin. It's, it's the reversal of the fall. It's a place where everything is in harmony and there's no discord, especially between God and man. It's the end of all tears and sadness and heartbreak and betrayal. It's the end of all anxiety and stress and fear. Just imagine what it would be like to never feel fear again. It's the end of temptation, addiction, and vice, right? Just imagine never desiring something that was destructive for you. It's the end of all manipulation and exploitation and oppression. It's the end of all loneliness and depression and, and boredom. All right, so th this, is, this is how Revelation 21 paints the kingdom of God, the vision that it gives us, verse, verses three and four. It says, behold, the, the dwelling place of God is with man. When's the last time man and God, they lived together in the same place? It was the garden. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things, the fallen world that have passed away. And Jesus' message that he was preaching from town to town was that he is the one who will bring the kingdom, who will bring that about, and he's the one who has the authority and the ability to do it. He has the authority to restore all things from the fall and the ability, the power to do it. Right? He has the authority to restore your life and your soul and your body. He, he can do it. 
Uh, He has the authority to restore your marriage from bitterness. He can do that. Or restore your soul from the trauma that it's experienced in this life. Restore your mind from its illness. Restore your body from addictions and desires that's not good for it. He he can restore your soul from deep anxiety that plagues you and you have no idea when it's going to attack. He has the authority to restore your heart from desires and motivations that you just wish you could get rid of. He has the authority to push back the enemy so that he'll never tempt us again. I mean, he literally has the authority to put death to death. And so here's here's the question that we need to ask this morning. What's the holdup? A serious question. What is Jesus waiting for? If Jesus has the authority to restore all things and eliminate evil, how come he has not done that yet? I mean, don't you feel that tension in the text? Like when you read a a miraculous story in the Bible and how Jesus healed someone or he rebuked this illness and he did these different things and you wonder, why does Jesus heal some people and decide not to heal others? I mean, as he was visiting these towns, he healed some, he did not heal all. In verse 42 and 43, it's very clear that he didn't heal everyone. He was going from town to town. He he moved on. And maybe that's a question you've had in your life. God, I, I believe that you have the authority and the ability to change my circumstances. Why am I the one who is not being healed? And why are they the one who is? Did I do something? Am I not as worthy? Is my faith not as strong? Like, what is it, God? What's wrong with me that's caused you to decide not to heal me or heal my loved one? It's clear in our text this morning that Jesus' purpose and his plan at this particular time while he was here was, was not to heal everyone. His purpose and his plan at that particular point in time was not to bring the kingdom in its fullness right then. It's clear it was not that. But what does he say his purpose is? Verse 43, it says, He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. His purpose was to preach the good news of the kingdom, to announce the coming of the kingdom, but not to establish it in its fullness right then and there. Because the kingdom of God is not just about the restoration of our circumstances. It's also about the renovation of our hearts. Just think about this for a second. If God were to use all of his power and all of his authority to eliminate all of the hard circumstances in our lives. But he didn't address our hearts. 
He didn't address our tendencies to depend on ourselves. He he didn't address our selfish bent that causes us to be more concerned about ourselves than others. He didn't address our competitiveness where we desire more than others have. Would that be the kingdom of God? I mean, humanity as we are today, just with no hard circumstances. Isn't that Adam and Eve in the garden? Right, their circumstances were perfect. They were in paradise. They had never felt fear. They had never felt regret. They had never felt anger or bitterness. And yet, the enemy was able to turn their hearts against God and against each other. And what do they do? They they broke God's word. They fought against each other. They blamed each other. Discord. They brought on all these hard circumstances to themselves and to all of creation through the sin of their hearts. And God is bringing a kingdom that's not only going to redeem our circumstances, it will one day, but it's going to fundamentally change our hearts. Right? God is not just interested in using supernatural power to change our circumstances. God is interested in the joy of your heart. And it's better. And so as Jesus begins his ministry, he announces the kingdom. He demonstrates that he has the authority to bring the kingdom. And then he begins that process of bringing it. And Jesus is going to do three things in his ministry. And we'll see him do this as we study the gospel of Luke. Three things in his ministry to start that process of bringing the kingdom of God. All right, the first thing he's gonna do is he's gonna teach us the way of the kingdom. And the second thing he's gonna do is he's gonna demonstrate the way of the kingdom. And the third thing he's gonna do is inaugurate the kingdom, okay? Teach, demonstrate, and inaugurate. All right, Jesus doesn't just bring the kingdom instantaneously on the spot like that. He he spends three years teaching us the way of the kingdom. Showing us that the kingdom isn't just about an easier life with better circumstances, but it's a different kind of life altogether. A life where every single person in the kingdom has a heart that is fundamentally and authentically more in love with God and more concerned for others than self. I mean, that is an utter renovation of the heart, is it not? A heart that concerns itself more with the circumstances of others than just being consumed with their own circumstances. And so Jesus is going from town to town, teaching and painting a picture of the kingdom of God that's just like this. And and as you may have guessed, many people listened to this teaching of the way of the kingdom and said, I don't wanna have any part of that. But Jesus doesn't just teach it. He demonstrates the kingdom of God and the way that he loved people His grace, his gentleness, his mercy, his ability to see the potential in people, to fill them with dignity, and his desire to move towards them and not away from them. Jesus demonstrated compassion for the grieving and the hurting. He noticed the people that most people ignored. He moved toward the marginalized and the outcasts and called them central to the kingdom. 
He valued the heart above appearance. He demonstrates for us what kingdom living looks like. And of course, to some, a kingdom that brings the marginalized and the outcasts and makes them central to the kingdom is not a kingdom they want to be a part of. But most importantly, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom. Jesus opens the channel through which the kingdom of God can can begin to be established here on earth through his death and resurrection, right? Because our hearts are sick. They are infected with sin that makes us more interested in our own little kingdom rather than being a part of God's kingdom. Our hearts are on a war footing apart from Christ. We have built this little kingdom and we have declared war against The kingdom of God is what we've done. And so it's an act of war when we sin against God because we are trying to push back his kingdom in favor of ours. And it's an act of war when God sends his son, Jesus, with authority and power to overtake our little kingdoms. And the world has been ravaged through the ways that all of our little kingdoms fight with God and with each other. And so yes, our our hearts need to be renovated, but first they need to be reconciled and at peace with God. And that's how Jesus inaugurates the kingdom, by providing a way that we can be reconciled to God, forgiven, pardoned of our treason against the kingdom of God. And so Jesus goes to the cross and on the cross, he takes on the treason that we committed against God's kingdom. And then through his resurrection, he welcomes us in as citizens of God's kingdom. And with hearts that are now ready to begin the process of renovation. The process of being molded into what Jesus taught and what he demonstrated during his life. But for one to be reconciled to God, they, they have to abandon their own kingdom, pick up their cross, and trust and follow Jesus. And he will bring you into the kingdom and begin that renovation of your heart. Like, this is what God is doing in your life. He's bringing the kingdom of God to, to bear on your heart. And sometimes we cry out to God and ask that God would intervene in our lives and change our circumstances. And just like Jesus did when he was here in the flesh, there are times that God does that, he intervenes, and there are times that it seems like he does not. Here's what God is saying. God is saying, trust me, right? My will for your life is not better circumstances. My will for your life is joy. And as one with all authority and power and all sovereignty, I am using your circumstances. As crazy as that sounds to us in the moment, I am using them to renovate your heart and bring about joy. Or like, I hear your prayers and your cries. Keep crying out to me because your cries to me are not falling on deaf ears. They are being heard by a God that is more committed to your joy than you are. Because I love you, I am not going to follow your lead nor take your instructions on how I pursue your joy. I'm your creator. I'm better at pursuing it than you are. 
and I'm gonna do it my way, not your way. So keep crying out to me because the more you cry out to me, the more you rely on me and not yourself. So I hear your prayers and I'm at work. And so what, ha- what happens is over time, as we cry out to God and over time, as we learn to trust him, as God does his work of renovation, we grow hearts that begin to choose God over ourselves. Hearts that are content and not restless. Hearts that can trust God even when we are grieving. Hearts that can taste joy, not because of our circumstances, but in spite of them. Hearts that voluntarily, willfully, and joyfully choose the kingdom of God over our little kingdom. And in God's wisdom, he has chosen to take us on a journey of discovering and choosing God's kingdom over our own rather than just doing it in the snap of a finger. You know, and as a part of this plan to bring God's kingdom and as part of his plan on how he renovates our hearts, he has chosen to use us as the primary way that he leads others to his kingdom. Our passage this morning is about the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he displays his authority to bring God's kingdom. But at the end of Jesus' ministry, after he went to the cross, but before he ascended to be with the Father, after he resurrected from the dead, what did Jesus do? He gathered all of his disciples, the people that he had taught about the kingdom, the people that he demonstrated the kingdom to, that the people that he welcomed into the kingdom through his death and resurrection. These people, he gathered them all before he went to be with the Father and he said this to them. Matthew 28, 18 and 20, he said this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? I am the one who has the authority to bring the kingdom of God. I am beginning the work of bringing the kingdom of God. And so here's the plan. Here's how we're going to bring the kingdom of God. It's my authority. It's my ability. Here's the plan. Verse 19, you, disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Proclaim the gospel of this kingdom to every corner of this planet baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, welcoming them into the kingdom by them trusting in Christ and what he did on the cross and through his resurrection. Baptism being the sign that they have trusted in Christ. And he says this, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, everything that I taught you, everything that I demonstrated to you, teach them to follow that too. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age, right? And the cycle repeats. As disciples are made, their hearts are renovated, and then they are sent out to make more disciples. And the kingdom of God grows on earth. And this is God's call upon the church until he returns. And when his people is ready, when when as everyone that he has willed to hear about the kingdom and come into the kingdom have heard, when the Gospel has hit every tribe, nation, and tongue. Christ will then return. He will restore all things and he will change all of our circumstances because the kingdom of God will be here in its fullness. But see, the kingdom of God is not just about our 
circumstances. It's about the renovation of our hearts. I'll, last night, I had just such the honor and privilege of attending a fundraiser for Laura Kane. I see you out there. You're somewhere out there. Uh, one of our members here at Grace Hill, Laura was just hired full-time to lead Young Lives here in Northwest Fairfax. She starts on April 1st, and you'll hear more about that in a couple of weeks. Um, but Young Lives is a ministry we've been partnering with that seeks to uh, minister the gospel to teen moms. Uh, many of you have heard Laura's story. Grew up in Lima, Peru. Came here to America as a teenager. Got caught up in a tough crowd and ended up pregnant by the age of 17. Not too much longer after that, she ended up pregnant with another guy for the second time. This guy deserts her as soon as he finds out that she's pregnant. She's young, two kids. This is just the time of her life where she felt so much shame and she felt so worthless. And this feeling like, God, I don't, you haven't intervened yet. You haven't changed my circumstances yet. What's wrong with me? Felt like she had nothing to offer. This is one of those times in your life where you get on your knees and you cry out to God and you ask God for quick, supernatural, miraculous change in circumstances. It's like Jesus in the garden. He knew he was going to the cross. God, is there any other way? Laura's story does not feature a parting of the Red Sea moment where God just changed everything in the snap of a finger. Laura's story is all about God's consistent faithfulness to her. He never left her. He always moved towards her, even when she felt unworthy of that. And he began to renovate her heart so that she would be in this place where her heart just voluntarily and joyfully follows Jesus. And today, Laura leads a ministry that is solely focused on introducing teen moms to the kingdom of God. And if God would have swooped in and just changed her circumstances in a snap of a finger, if he did not allow her to walk through those hard times in life, she would not have the kind of understanding of God's faithfulness and mercy as she does today. And she would not be equipped in the unique way that she is to serve those precious teen moms who need someone to move towards them. And she would not be experiencing the joy of God's unique call on her life to make disciples. Y'all, God redeems everything. And he'll take your circumstances, even your sin, even your screw-ups, and he can turn those around and he renovates your hearts to joy for you. Right? Jesus has all authority to bring the kingdom of God. And that means even authority over your past. Think about that. And in his wisdom and in his love, his first order of business as he brings the kingdom of God 
is to begin to renovate your heart. He doesn't waste your circumstances, not one of them. And he is working towards your joy and your happiness. Your circumstances today matter. Some of them hurt. And it's good and it's right to cry out to God. And there are times he does intervene because that was his will. Because he's, he's doing what he knows how to do best, pursue our joy. He is not flippant about our circumstances. He's not flippant about our prayers. He desires to see your soul at peace. And so he says, keep crying out to me when it's hard and don't forget about me when it's easy. I'll end with what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, where he says this, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Amen, let's pray. God, this morning, as I prayed in the beginning, I I know that there are people in this room who are, who are really hurting and grieving and, and walking through some circumstances right now, God, that just seem like how could there be any good in them? How could you, God, redeem this? How could this ever be turned around into something for your glory and my joy? God, would you just remind every one of us in this room that you have the authority and the ability to restore every single part of our lives. And you have the authority and the ability to use our circumstances, to renovate our hearts, to bring about our joy and a life that is all about your glory. And so God, use us, renovate our hearts, help us to trust in you. May you be glorified through the lives that we lead. We love you, God, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.